Let's open our Bibles once again to the book of Romans. We've been in Romans for quite some time, and there have been interruptions, but as we move along, we have preached several sermons on the ninth chapter of Romans, but the last verses of the ninth chapter of Romans we have yet to expound. Romans chapter 9, verse 30 And we will be reading through chapter 10, verse 3, though barely touching on those verses in chapter 10 until we actually turn the page to it. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word is our prayer. Romans 9.30, this is the word of God. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, as I say, it has been some time since we've been in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. A number of sermons have been preached It's probably wise that I remind you of the theme. The ninth chapter of the book of Romans is dealing with the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners with electing grace. The sovereignty of grace. And as the Apostle Paul began in chapter 9 with this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart as he desired his kinsmen according to the flesh to be saved... That is to say, as he was burdened for Israel, that Jews would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands that the only hope, the only hope for them is the sovereign grace of God. As Charles Hodge put it, no form of error is more destructive than that which leads to self-dependence, either reliance on our own powers or own our own merit. Now, this is precisely the issue. The Pharisaical Jews were dependent upon their own self-effort. They were dependent upon what they considered to be their own merits. They were self-dependent rather than God-dependent. They believed that by their works they could attain salvation. And, of course, despised by the natural man is the sovereign grace of God always. Because man in his hubris wants to make a contribution. And most people that you talk with about this whole issue of salvation, if they see any need of salvation at all, believe that their works contribute at least in a measure to their salvation. And so they may think that all of their works contribute. They have this viewpoint of God as sort of weighing good and bad deeds and their good deeds are going to outweigh the bad. Or at least they say, if it is mostly by mercy, it is by also something that I contribute. 
Now that's Paul's concern for the Jew. They failed to understand the righteousness of the law and that it cannot bring salvation. And so when he says in verse 30 of chapter 9, what shall we say then? That's really pointing back to all that he has been saying in this ninth chapter about the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners. And as the Apostle Paul really has been addressing two themes, one is Gentile inclusion. How is it possible for pagan Gentiles to be included in the kingdom of God? And also the question, have the promises to Israel failed? If God has made promises to save Israel, have those promises failed? The answer in both directions is the same. Uh, For the Gentile pagan, the only way he can be saved is by God's electing grace. Uh, For the Jew who believes that somehow his works can save him, away with those works, the only way in which you can be saved is by the electing grace of God. And so in chapter 9, verses 14 through 16, he said, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy, as the old authorized version so wonderfully expresses and translates the passage. You know, in chapter 11, just to anticipate it, the Apostle Paul gives in chapter 11 really the the quintessential answer to this question of salvation, and especially as it regards the the Jew, when in verses 4 through 6 he says this. Now, he's considering the remnant of Israel, and he's thinking about uh, the time when Uh, Elijah said, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And Elijah was in great depression. But in verse 4 of chapter 11, here's God's reply to him. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, says Paul, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So what Paul would have us to see is that sovereign grace excludes all human merit. There is no contribution that we can make to our justification. There is no contribution that we may make to our acceptance before God. Election demands that our salvation from sin is in accordance with God's plan, with His purpose and grace, and that we contribute nothing whatsoever. And so the only answer to Jewish unbelief can be the electing grace of God. And this is no discouragement to Paul the Apostle. This is the great encouragement I pointed out to you as we have looked at this chapter and others. Here we have Paul the Apostle, the great proponent of election, the great preacher of predestinating grace, who also is the greatest evangelist that the world has ever known. Here is Paul, a burning evangelist for Jesus Christ, not despite his doctrine of electing grace, but because of his doctrine of electing grace. Because Paul knows that God has a people whom he will save, a multitude which no man can number, 
from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth, as we read in the book of Revelation. And that when the gospel is preached, though the natural man will always reject the gospel, yet when the sovereign grace of God reaches down, opens hearts, regenerates, effectually calls, those people will be saved. And so there's this great confluence, and my great encouragement, and I'm sure Jeff's great encouragement in preaching the Word of God, is the knowledge that there is this confluence between, between the Word that is proclaimed, the Word that is preached, and the promise that the Spirit of God will always apply that gospel to those chosen by God in God's own time and in His own way. So the only answer to Jewish unbelief is the election of God. And in this passage, the apostle begins by contrasting Gentile and Jewish unbelief. So that's the first thing we want to see. Gentile belief and Jewish unbelief contrasted. So he begins by looking at these debauched Gentiles that are pursuing unrighteousness. Now this is an amazing thing, is it not? He says in verse 30, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So the Apostle Paul reaches back in his mind all the way to the first chapter of the book of Romans. And he says, Do you remember the debauchery of the Roman world as I summarized it by divine inspiration in chapter 1 of this very epistle? There you see that men are truth suppressors and they live ungodly and debauched lives. They do not care anything about the grace of God. They do not care anything about the law of God. And the astonishing thing is the debauched Gentiles pursuing unrighteousness are the very ones that are pouring into the kingdom of God. Now that's an amazing thing, an amazing truth, an astonishing thing that God saves such. But you see, He only saves ungodly people. Christ did not come for the godly. He came for the ungodly. He only saves sinners. In verse 30, when we read that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, perhaps a better translation would be apprehended it. The verb actually means to seize. They seized it. There seems to be a certain eagerness, not as if they attained it by some work of their own, but God having opened their hearts, they seized upon this gospel of the grace of God. Haldane made the statement, this is an astonishing instance of mercy. Men who were haters of God and guilty of all abominations were thus made partakers of that righteousness which is commensurate to all the demands of the law. And if you are here tonight, and I do not know your heart, and only God does, and this is your choice in life, and you are living as those Gentiles, according to the first chapter of the book of Romans, you are going your own way, you care nothing for God's law, the word of the gospel to you, the good news to you is, there is no sinner that is too bad to be saved. There is no sinner that is too sinful to be saved by the infinitely valuable shed blood of Jesus Christ. But how did the righteousness that meets the standard of the law become theirs? 
How did it become the Gentiles, that is to say, those who have believed? Well, that's the answer. It became theirs by faith. Look at verse 30 again. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. Now, you might recall in chapter 4 when Abraham's justification and David's justification is being dwelt upon, that the Old Testament saints were justified by grace through faith. That in chapter 4 of verse 16 we read, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It depends on faith in order that it might be by grace. There is only one way to be accepted in the presence of God, the holy, the righteous God. There is only one way that sinners can be justified in His presence, and that is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, who shed His blood in order to redeem sinners. Now that's the Gentiles, the pagan Gentiles in their rebellion against God, These are the ones that by electing grace have been singled out by God and they are being drawn into the kingdom. By contrast, the Jews in verse 31. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. And so he says, do you see the Jew? Do you see this Pharisee with all of his morality and with all of his religiosity? He pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. Indeed, were it possible to obey the law of God perfectly, you could be saved by the law. But that's the point. None of us can. And that's why Christ came, to obey the law and to pay its penalty. And so they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, the law of Moses, but Israel did not succeed. They could not attain it. Because the Jew thought, keep the law and you're safe. But all of the first chapters, the first four chapters of the book of Romans, all of these chapters are there to tell us that neither Jew nor Gentile could realize that standard. No one can obey the law of God for righteousness. Nobody. And so in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, the Apostle Paul summarizes for us what is true of both the Jew and the Gentile. When he says in Romans 3, 9 and following this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Having spoken of the Gentiles and their lost estate, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth 
may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So here it is. The people who did not have the codified law, although the law was written upon or the work of the law was written upon the Gentile heart, they did not have the codified law. Those are the one being saved, coming into the kingdom, while the religious moral Jew is lost. So if your view of salvation is establishment of your salvation and justification by your human merit... Well, if that's your thought, then it makes, this simply makes no sense that these Gentiles would be accepted and you would not. But the answer to the dilemma is righteousness does not come by law, but righteousness is received by faith. Why not? Why not? Why not the law? Why not good works? Why not your contribution? Why not the law? And the answer that Paul gives elsewhere in various places to summarize is simply this. Because the law of God is a reflection of God's own infinite nature. And the law of God in its inflexibility cannot lower its requirement of absolute perfection. And those who cannot offer What the law requires, if they intend to be saved by it, are cursed and damned by it and are under the condemnation of the law. That's the answer. Because the law inflexibly demands perfection. Now, it's popular to doubt that this was really the Jewish aim in the first century A.D., the so-called new perspective on Paul that has swept all of the universities and Uh, They say that wasn't the Jewish aim after all. The Jew was really not concerned with, um, with merit before God. They really believed in salvation by grace after all. May I just ask that you look at the text? Chapter 10, verse 3, speaking of the Jew, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. That's the righteousness he spoke of in chapter 1. It's justification. Being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. Or it's certainly implied in those opening verses in chapter 9, verse 30, that Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. There are many other places to which we could turn. One in the Gospels is Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 9. You remember the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted, listen to this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the Pharisee. He was trusting in himself that he was righteous. And there are Pharisees still. There's a Pharisee really, I think, in every human heart. But Let's move on here in chapter 9 and let's go to the second thing we need to see. Why did Israel not attain righteousness? Why did Israel not attain righteousness? Verse 32 of chapter 9. Why? Because they did not pursue that righteousness by faith, but as if it were based on works. They did not pursue it by 
faith. Faith is not a work. Faith is a grace. In chapter 4 of Romans, again, verse 5, speaking of Abraham's justification, we are told, and to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith is not a work. Faith must have an object. That object is Christ. When Christ, the object of faith, is believed, his righteousness is imputed. But it is no work. How is any man saved? The answer is God chose him and God gives him saving faith. And that is why there's no problem here between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Wait a minute, someone says. We have in this chapter the sovereignty of God, the electing grace of God, and the demand of faith. I see a problem here. God is sovereign, and yet he is saying to human beings, you need to believe. Well, to say by faith is not to say by works. And when we speak of the necessity of faith, we are not saying that God supplies the grace and man supplies the faith. It is true, you believe, but you believe because God has granted you saving faith. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is a grace. Faith is a gift of God's grace. So if I may quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, we are... We are responsible for our rejection of the gospel, but we are not responsible for our acceptance of the gospel. That is the result of the electing grace of God. And he goes on to say, how is any man saved? There's only one answer. It is because God has chosen him. Why is any man lost? A man is lost because he is a willful and deliberate sinner and a proud and boastful sinner who rejects the offer of the gospel. So there's an axiom that you hear from this pulpit from time to time, and it is simply this. Every man, every man who has departed from God is responsible to return to the God from whom he has departed, even though he is incapable. But there is no excuse before the judgment on the day. You will not be able, if you're an unbeliever, to look at God and say, Well, I heard the gospel, but I didn't accept it because I wasn't elect. Wait a minute. Was the gospel preached? Yes. Was it sufficient for your need? Yes. Did you want it? No. Do you want Christ? No. Has any, anyone ever wanted the gospel or wanted Christ and come to him and he has turned them away? No. And so the electing grace of God is our encouragement, but it is never an excuse for a sinner on the day of judgment. So you see, the Jews based acceptance on works, but works, please get it way down into your heart. Works cannot write wise. They cannot make you right with God. You cannot be accepted on the basis of works. If so, then we would have something about which to boast. And you remember back here in chapter 3, in verse 27, having expressed the propitiatory work of Christ and redemption through His blood and how we are justified by faith, in chapter 3:27, he says, then what becomes of our boasting Boasting is excluded 
By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Because faith is simply the receptacle for receiving the justifying righteousness that is offered in the gospel. Again in chapter 4, verse 2 of Romans, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And so if there's some work that you contribute, then you have something about which to boast before God. But the Jew based his acceptance on works, and he thinks he has something to boast. But Romans 9 tells us there's nothing to boast about, because if you are saved... It is because of the electing grace of God. So why are you a Christian? Why are you a believer in Christ? Why do you know him? Why do you trust him? Why are you righteous with the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to your account? Is there something better in you than was in some other sinner that also heard the gospel but he rejected it? No, you're not better. There's there's something you could offer perhaps that made the difference? No, there's nothing you could offer. The answer is, you are a Christian because of grace and grace alone, grace through faith. And faith in Christ became for the Jew the great stumbling block. So back here in chapter 9, verse 33, he says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So perhaps citing Isaiah 8, 13 and 14 or Isaiah 28, 16 or Psalm 118, verse 22. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Rather than this being the foundation under their feet, rather than trusting in Christ alone, believing in him and being established with eternal life, rather than Christ being the foundation, Christ The preaching of the gospel, the preaching of faith was the great stumbling stone for these Jews. Our relationship to God is determined by our attitude toward Christ. What is your attitude toward Christ? What is your attitude toward the cross? Do you have faith, saving faith in Christ, which is God's gift? And the only answer to that litany of depravity that is true of both Jew and Gentile, according to Paul. The law of God coming against us, every mouth being shut that really understands the significance and the inflexibility of the law, the only answer to it is found in chapter 3, verse 24, when he says, for those who have sinned, this is the only way you can be saved. You're justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So briefly, let's thirdly see this. Law and gospel, the place of both. For the Gentile, that is to say the wicked pagan, and also for the Jew, for the moralist. Law and gospel. So here are the Gentiles living a profligate life. And Paul can go to them and he can preach the gospel. What do they need to hear? Well, you say they need to hear about Jesus who came to save sinners. Yes, but they need to know they're sinners, right? They're living profligate lives. 
They don't pursue righteousness at all. They are unconcerned with the law of God. What they need to hear is that God has a law and that he condemns everyone who in his debauchery uh, turns aside from Jesus Christ alone as Savior. He needs to hear there's a law that comes and the law condemns, receive Christ by faith. But then you have the Jew, and the Jew, of course, is a moralist. He thinks that he can contribute at least something to his justification, if not everything. What do they need to hear? They need to hear also, you're trying to be righteous with God in all the wrong ways. You also do not understand the spirituality of the law. You do not understand that it is absolute perfection that is required by the law. You need the same thing. You need, from a different perspective, also to hear that there is a law and that you are condemned by that law. That righteousness is not by law-keeping, but righteousness is by faith. So both the Jew and the Gentile, though living in different ways in regard to the law, the pagan living as an antinomian, living a profligate life, the Jew living as a moralist, thinking that he can keep the law and be saved, neither the Gentile nor the Jew understands the perfection of the law of God and sees himself as under the condemning wrath of God because of it. And what both the profligate and the moralist needs is to know that he's a sinner, that God might work through that God-given knowledge to him, and that there might be a transition from wrath to grace. Do you know that every sinner, for every sinner, that is the fundamental need. There must be a transition from wrath to grace. That Jesus himself preached these very things in John chapter 3, when we read in verse 18 of chapter 3 of John's gospel, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Every human being is under the condemnation and wrath of God, and you are hopeless and helpless unless there is a transition out of wrath into grace, a movement from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of the evil one into the kingdom of God's own dear Son, a movement from the profligate to see that he's a sinner and he needs a Savior, a movement for the moralist so that he sees that he's a sinner and can contribute nothing and that his salvation must be by grace alone. So both Jew and Gentile, both of them, hate the sovereign grace of God. And that word is not too strong. Everyone outside of Christ hates God's method of salvation until the Holy Spirit opens his heart to love it. They hate sovereign grace and they are condemned by the perfection of the law, but the need is the same. The need is, to use those great words of old William Cunningham, The need of every sinner is the righteousness that God's righteousness requires him to require. The righteousness that God's own righteousness requires him to require is the righteousness that is perfect and only Christ in God's court of law can make it available.
It is judicial righteousness. It is legal righteousness. It is borrowed, alien righteousness. It is righteousness that comes from another. It is not something that you can produce. It is imputed righteousness. It is reckoned righteousness. And it is received by faith alone. Faith, not works. So there may be someone here who actually thinks that somehow I can contribute something to my salvation. And I love those words of James Henley Thornwell when he says, Suppose a man could expose for sale an article worth $1,000 at the small price of one cent. The man who pays the one cent becomes entitled to the article on the score of a debt just as completely as though he had paid the full value. The principle of debt is just this, a reward and consideration for something done. It matters not how slight that something may be. Now, when salvation is said to be by grace in opposition to works or debt, it excludes everything in the sinner himself as the ground of his title to it and leaves it to the mere disposal of God so that it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. If you think, Thornwell is saying, that you're just contributing a mite, then it's still debt. It still works. And the only way you can have the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account is that it is received by faith alone. So let me conclude. There may be some here who are living profligate lives. You really don't have a high view of God. You've never really understood what it means that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You've never really seen that God is righteous and holy in all of His ways. Your view of God has been that somehow He's this indulgent Santa Claus that's just going to let you off the hook. No, He's the holy God who hates sin. And who says to you, you are under my condemning wrath. And there must be a transition from wrath to grace. You may be profligate. You need to hear that this is who God is. A God of justice. Absolute inflexible justice. You say God is a God of love. Absolutely. But he's also justice. Or some may be here and you're a moralizer. You don't live a profligate life. It would never occur to you, perhaps, to live in a way that would lead to uh, drunkenness and sexual sin. You live very upright lives, and, but you still think. You see, sin just shows itself in different ways in different hearts. And maybe in your heart, the way it shows is by moralism. You think that somehow you can be right with God by what you do. Beth and Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife. Amazing that he got the girl. I, I think there were 21 proposals. He was the first and the last. Uh, but uh, they both came out of Welch Calvinistic Methodism. Uh, that later became the Presbyterian Church in Wales. But the Welch Calvinistic Methodists go back to the time of George Whitfield and the Great Awakening. Dr. Lloyd-Jones came to London, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor, actually working with Horder, who was the Queen's physician. 
came to understand the gospel very, very clearly, decided he wanted to drop medicine and preach for the salvation of souls. So he wanted this lovely young girl, Bethan Lloyd-Jones, as his wife. She grew up in Welch Calvinistic Methodist. She was a, a, a good chapel-going girl. You with me? As far as Dr. Lloyd-Jones knew, she was a believer. And they went to their first charge, and she began to hear Dr. Lloyd-Jones preach. And she would say to herself, if that's what Christianity is, I'm not a Christian. One day she was on a bus, and someone who was a member of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' congregation came and sat by her. He said, Mrs. Lloyd-Jones, I I know your husband preaches the gospel, but I wonder if you yourself know these things personally. And then he got off at the next corner, made her think. She went to her husband, and she expressed her doubts, and he gave her a book by John Engel James that helped to clear things up, but it took a couple of years hearing the gospel under her husband's ministry, and then she saw this moral, upstanding, little chapel-going Calvinistic Methodist girl didn't know the gospel and didn't know Jesus, and then she believed And her heart was cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And she said, I was so happy. That may be someone here. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Now that's it. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Have you seen yourself to be a sinner? Have you acknowledged I am a sinner? Do you really know what it means to need God's grace? Do you see yourself as foul within? So that you are so now moved by the grace of God and the mercy of God in Christ to say, foul I to the fountain, fly. I can't wait to get to Him. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the message of this passage tonight. May God bless it to our hearts.